0: Welcome back to Current Account, I'm your host, Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as some of the most important issues in international finance and economics, while providing my own US politics and policy angles on these different issues where it is appropriate. In this final episode of Current Account, before we take a little break in August, I'd like to talk about a timely topic within the world of sustainable finance. And that is something called the International Sustainability Standards Board, which in the parlance is known as the ISSB. Now, at the Institute of International Finance, we basically work on a lot of global regulatory and policy areas. One thing we try to do, and we're not successful all the time, of course, is to try to break down the problem of fragmentation. Fragmentation is basically where different jurisdictions in the world are taking very different or sometimes somewhat different approaches to regulatory or policy issues that create problems for businesses and financial services business in particular that are trying to do things. We do this because it usually creates inefficiencies. It creates more of a regulatory as opposed to a trade perspective on protectionism. And it leads to actually worse outcomes for the global economy, at least in our opinion. The International Sustainability Standards Board, the ISSB, and the standards that they've been trying to come up with is an approach to try to change that or to make it better, at least. And so that's why I thought it would be important to have a conversation about it. But I'm not an expert on it, so I am delighted to be joined by two of my colleagues here at the IAF who have been closely following the ISSB and what's been going on. They are Jeremy McDaniels, he is the Deputy Director for Sustainable Finance, and Katie Rasmanchi, who is the Deputy Director in our Regulatory Affairs Department. So Jeremy and Katie, thank you both for joining me. Thanks so much, Clay. Great to be with you.
1: Great to be here.
0: Okay. So let's start with a scene setter, if you will. In layman's terms, what is the ISSB and what are its goals? And I'm going to turn to you, Katie.
1: Thank you, Clay. Um, So the ISSB is the International Sustainability Standards Board, and in a sense, it does what it says on the tin. So it was designed and created with the intention of developing global sustainability reporting or disclosure standards for use by firms in different sectors of the economy. The ultimate aim um, is for more consistent and complete and comparable um, sustainability-related financial information for investors and markets. And the ISSB was established by the International Financial Reporting Standards Foundation in 2021, so quite recently. Um, and the IFRS uh, Foundation is a non-profit organization that oversees financial reporting and accounting standard setting and the ISSB was set up quite quickly and, and got to work quickly on its mission. And it turned around these standards within about 18 months. And on June 26th, they published their, their final
0: standards. All right. So that's actually very fast work. So maybe I'll, Jeremy, to get you br- brought in here, why is this actually an important thing to do? What's What's so great about putting up these standards? Thanks, Clay. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I think the, the story of the ISSB
2: and... Really, the the question of why it's so significant requires a bit of a step back in the history of of sustainable finance over the last uh, decade or so. So um, over this time period, the entire sustainable finance sphere has evolved remarkably quickly in multiple areas when we're thinking about how financial institutions are considering sustainability risks and opportunities, how they're engaging with corporates, the financial instruments that are being uh, developed risk management practices, and also uh, disclosures. And this has been in response to market demand, uh, increasing supervisory and regulatory interest, and I think increasing civil society expectations. We've seen a lot of new issues being considered in the, within the realm of sustainability. So there's been a broadening of the agenda. If we look back to you know, the early 2000s, obviously the focus was on ethical investing, so kind of ensuring that your investments are not doing any harm introduction of the concept of ESG, environmental, social, and governance priorities, and most recently, a kind of a look towards a more integrated view on sustainability priorities that is reflecting uh, the UN Sustainable Development Goals. But we've also seen a deepening of this agenda when we're thinking about issues like climate risks, which have obviously received a huge focus uh, within the market and from policy stakeholders and approaches to, to understanding what those types of risks may mean for your business. So across all of this, there's been, I think, a parallel evolution in disclosure practices. We've seen both a broadening and deepening here. So several frameworks for disclosure of sustainability information were developed independently over the course of the 2000s and 2010s, including the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, or SASB, the Climate Disclosure Standards Board, or CDSB. International Integrated Reporting Council, IRC, and the Global Reporting Initiative, or GRI. Um, All of these frameworks took slightly different perspectives on uh, sustainability issues, resulting in a set of overlapping frameworks and guidance that were touching on aspects of similar things. So um, there was a bit of a patchwork to be worked through. The launch of the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, or TCFD, in 2015 really marked a step change in this whole uh, debate and really, I think, reframed how corporates and financial institutions were considering climate change and provided a set of pillars uh, for disclosure in terms of governance, strategy, risk management, and metrics and targets that kind of took a bit more of a comprehensive view across uh, an organization. So for many years, I'd say the story of disclosure was one of proliferation. And why the ISSB is so significant is that it actually represents a shift towards consolidation in the form of a global standard setting body, which has uh, incorporated many of these frameworks. So specifically, the content, uh, kind of technical IP, but also the staff, of the Climate Disclosure Standards Board, so the CDSB and the Value Reporting Foundation, which came out of a merger of IARC and SASB, were consolidated into the IFRS Foundation. And uh, most recently, there has also been an incorporation of the formal work of the TCFD uh, as well. So we are really seeing uh, this sort of integration of of these multiple frameworks. And why that's so important is that it creates the basis for this consistent global baseline that that Katie mentioned, and provides one set of rules for jurisdictions to to consider adopting uh, one set of approaches uh, for uh, corporates and financial institutions around the world to
0: work with. Okay. So let me just say, Jeremy, if I tried to follow every acronym that you just gave me, my head would burst. Um, but I think you came up with, there were two clear things that you said that really, really resonated me. One is the word evolution. Second is the word consolidation. I think you actually used that there was a patchwork and then this is a way of trying to consolidate that patchwork plus the evolution of what we've learned over the last 10 to 15 years. So let me kind of Go down one more level. So, what do you think is the potential impact of these standards that, as Katie said, have been kind of finalized over the last month, or actually the last couple of weeks, really? And how will I guess they be enforced in the global system? Sure. Well, m- maybe it's worthwhile as well just to to provide a bit
2: of uh, a bit of a, a zoom in on on what the standards uh, actually are. So, the ISSB launched two standards in parallel on the twenty sixth of June. IFRS S1, which provides general requirements for disclosure of sustainability-related financial information, and IFRS S2, which focuses on climate-related financial disclosure. So I'll just jump into these quickly in turn. So the objective of S1 is to uh, require an entity to disclose information about its sustainability-related risks and opportunities that is useful for users of general-purpose financial reports, in making decisions relating to providing resources to that entity. So the core focus here is really on meeting the needs of investors. And the S1 standard can be considered really the foundational standard for all of the work of the ISSB in that it specifies a number of aspects that are kind of carried as uh, consistent across IFRS S2. So I think what's really important here is to consider this focus on disclosure of information, that could be reasonably expected to affect an entity's cash flows, access to finance or cost of capital over the short, medium, or long term. And this is considered a concept of affecting an entity's prospects. And one aspect that is held consistent, I think, across uh, S1 and S2 that's worth mentioning is is this question of the materiality lens that is taken. So the IFRS Foundation has stated that from this focus on meeting the needs of investors, the ISSB We'll use the same definition of materiality that is used in the IFRS accounting standards. That is, information is material if omitting, obscuring, or misstating it could be reasonably expected to influence uh, investor decisions. The core focus here really is on financial materiality, things that are going to affect enterprise value. If I then look to the IFRS S2 on climate-related disclosures, This is really, in essence, a formalization of the work of the TCFD in the context of a global standard. So the focus here is on climate-related risks and opportunities, again, taking that same materiality perspective, and covers the governance, strategy, risk management, and metrics and targets pillars. Again, this is carried consistent across S1 and S2. And touches on a number of aspects of climate-related disclosures, which are still evolving, but were introduced by the TCFD, including, uh, for instance, transition planning and scenario analysis. And we'll be able to touch on on those themes, I think, a bit more later. But I think when looking at the question of of how these can be uh, enforced and what the kind of implementation process looks like, so at the international level... There has been, I think, strong support for the work of the ISSB. That's been the kind of the, the core foothold for all of this. So it's been backed by the G7, the G20, standard senators, including IOSCO, the FSB, and finance ministers and central bank governors in quite a number of, of jurisdictions. And the next step now is for jurisdictions to start the process to implement the standards. And in, in some jurisdictions, this has involved the establishment of jurisdictional sustainability standards boards to enable them to cooperate with the ISSB to translate this global standard into uh, the jurisdictional framework. So that's underway in Australia, Brazil, Canada, Japan, South Korea, uh, etc. There's also, I think, an important question around... Um, uh, implementation and, and, and enforcement that uh, arises where there are jurisdictions that already have uh, sustainability-related disclosure frameworks in place. And so that is where this question of kind of interoperability arises, I think, which we'll be able to also uh, touch on. But hopefully that gives a good kind of summary of, of what the standards are and uh, what some of the steps are for, for implementation. Enforcement ultimately will be a question at the jurisdictional level in terms of the framework that would be in place there and how the ISSB standards are then integrated within other expectations or requirements uh, and compliance structures around them.
0: Uh, thank you, Jeremy. And actually, that's a, the, your last point. And I know you were trying to, be, to briefly wrap it up, is a really important point, which is that international standards are just that, they're standards. And so for those that don't follow international regulatory matters as much as we do, the idea is you create the standards, but then they have to be put into a jurisdictional framework because that's where you get into legal issues. So if one country or one jurisdiction does not implement, then that's very different than another. So that's why kind of creating a standards and then trying to do your best at a jurisdictional level to implement those standards. And that would help offset some of the worries we have on fragmentation issues. Okay. So, Katie. I guess, what's the initial reaction been so far on what Jeremy has laid out over the last few weeks by the different authorities or other standard setters that are in the international system?
1: Yeah, well, there's been a very good reaction so far in the international community. So, the the alphabet soup of global policymakers and standard-setting bodies, and, and Jeremy mentioned some of them, have been welcoming the standards. That includes the Financial Stability Board that was responsible for the TCFD framework. As Jeremy mentioned, that's been very much used and integrated into the final ISSB standards. And the FSB announced that they are going to sort of disband that task force because it's sort of been replaced by the ISSB. So that is a positive step that, you know, we're evolving, as as you said earlier. IOSCO, that's the, uh, the International Organization of Securities Commissions. They welcome the standards and they're currently reviewing them closely. And that's quite significant because if IOSCO approves them, then that would be a further push towards regulatory adoption in different jurisdictions. So the members of IOSCO will probably take that up. And I think what's helpful, and this sort of touches on the point we were just discussing about implementation, what the ISSB standards have going for them in terms of working as a global baseline is their focus on financial materiality and what's of interest to investors and markets. And the idea behind the ISSB standards is there's, they're taking a building block approach. So the ISSB has created this standard for what's financially material. Um, and that basically means, you know, what about the climate or sustainability factors might affect the financials of a firm. And they're setting out a standard for that. And if other jurisdictions want to go further and layer on additional expectations in disclosure requirements, they can do that on top of the ISSB baseline.
0: So there's an area of this which actually is political. And that's not what you guys do for a living, so I'm not going to ask you to get worried about the politics. But the the reason that it's political is the two biggest jurisdictions here that think about this and push on these issues is the United States and Europe. And the United States and Europe sometimes have different views on this. International accounting standards, for instance, which was come up with a long time ago, the United States has actually never implemented those standards and has actually gone in a different direction. So, I guess how does the United States view this, and how does Europe view this? Are there differences? And it sounds to me, and you guys can correct me, that the ISSB has tried its best to bring these different jurisdictions and kind of find a kind of compromise position, but I may be wrong. So maybe, Jeremy, I'll turn to you and see if you have some thoughts on this.
2: Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much, Clay and, and, and Katie. Definitely appreciate appreciate your thoughts. Just on the question of the, the view within the U.S. So, I mean, you, you rightly pointed out, obviously, that the U.S. does not use IFRS standards. However, I think it is worth noting that the material available in the public domain to date, including from the SEC on its uh, proposed draft uh, climate disclosure rules, has indicated that efforts have been undertaken to try to reflect aspects of what the ISSB uh, standards uh, have have covered. Obviously, that work was done before the uh, standards have been finalized uh, and released, and we're still uh, awaiting the, the final release of this material from the SEC. Obviously, there's quite a process underway to finalize that. But I think that that recognition both I think reflects on the fact that the material encapsulated within the ISSB standards is very much reflective of materials that have been used in the market already right so especially pertaining to say climate related uh, risks this is basically a kind of core transposition of the tcfd which really does you know set the framework on climate related disclosure i think it's also worth noting that looking at question of metrics the ISSB has incorporated many aspects of, of the metrics used by SASB, developed by SASB, which was, in, and, and obviously this was developed within, within the U.S. Um, so I think that there is, I think, probably some close uh, alignment there. Questions of internationalization of the SASB metrics um, have arisen when looking at applying uh, the ISSB uh, standards in other jurisdictions. Also, I, when looking at what the uh, SEC has produced, but also, um, you know, other, other statements from authorities in the U.S., I think there are a number of, of themes which illustrate that there are interests in uh, issues that the ISSB standards cover. So, for instance, uh, the question of climate-related uh, risk disclosure and how that would affect firms um, or how that would be relevant to a firm's uh, strategy, uh, the question of, of, say, transition as well but we will need to see where the SEC ends up uh, with respect to this. What I would say is that in a number of other jurisdictions, including uh, the UK, there has been reference to the uh, final uh, ISSB standards. So I think authorities in most jurisdictions are you know, aware of the importance of uh, supporting uh, alignment and and working through interoperability considerations. And this this last point, you know, working through interoperability, this is really the issue that is being uh, encountered uh, in Europe. And so, Katie, maybe I'll, I'll hand to you for some for some thoughts on on that process. Thank you.
1: Yeah, no, thanks, Jeremy. That's a a great overview. And so the the EU landscape for disclosure related requirements is very complex. But they, you know, a core part of it is the the corporate sustainability reporting directive. And, and that has, you know, um, quite extensive expectations in terms of disclosure by European firms. And I think they're finalizing their own standards at the moment, their European sustainability reporting standards. I think a key, key aspect here with respect to ISSB is that the the EU um, goes further from a materiality perspective than the ISSB, and then the US SEC has signaled that they would do. So, they account for financial materiality that I mentioned earlier, and they also account for sort of double materiality, which is sometimes called, um, which is basically the reverse direction. So, if financial materiality is the impact of, say, the climate on the firm's financials, uh, double materiality is the impact of the firm's activities on the climate itself. And you can see how that already really expands uh, the scope of what we're talking about in terms of information that would need to be disclosed. And the the EU also, um, with that concept of double materiality, has more users, more stakeholders in mind. So not just investors, but also employees of a company might want to know about that, customers, uh, clients, etc. So that's quite a big um, conceptual difference, I guess. But as I said earlier, ISSB knew that as they were going about their work and their intention was to have this foundation that's common with respect to financial materiality and allow others such as the EU to layer on their own uh, additional concepts as desired.
0: All right, great. Thank you for Jeremy and, and Katie for that. That was really helpful. And it does show that there are divergences but they're trying to figure out how to smooth those divergences out. So I guess that does kind of lead towards, so what's next? What is the ISSB doing next? What are the individual jurisdictions? Is there a best case scenario? Is there a realistic scenario? How do you see this going forward? And Jeremy, Oster, start
2: with you. Thanks very much, Clay. I, I think it's important to recognize that, well, the establishment of this global baseline is a really notable step forward towards a, a more consistent disclosure landscape more work will need to be done to achieve uh, global alignment and the ISSB definitely recognizes this and and uh, they've uh, undertaken a, and launched a number of efforts in this array in this domain already. So, I think there is a question of disclosure approaches in areas that are covered by the current S1 and S2 standards. For instance, disclosure of transition plans which are still uh, in development and how the ISSB kind of reflects what would be considered as the industry baseline and common approaches that are developed uh, over time, while balancing the fact that some jurisdictions already have sought to set out guidance and frameworks uh, in this area. So an example here is the UK Transition Plan Task Force, which um, has uh, set out a framework which will underlie uh, future uh, UK-level regulation. The question of how transition plans should be developed, again, as Katie mentioned, the EU's disclosure framework has many, many different layers and transition plans have been referenced across the, uh, those layers. And so financial institutions may, for example, may be uh, subject to requirements from a kind of economy-wide disclosure requirement perspective. They also may be subject to similar requirements from their prudential supervisor. So that is is really an important question um, for for the ISSB to, to consider. The other side of this equation is how the ISSB can consider developing standards in new disclosure areas that are developing quite rapidly but are not covered by either Um, IFRS uh, S1 or S2 directly. So an example here is uh, the whole agenda around nature-related disclosures. There is, of course, a uh, market-based task force on nature-related financial disclosures, or TNFD, which is set to release uh, its uh, final recommendations uh, in uh, September. This was modeled on the TCFD, so it's a voluntary market-based initiative but in order to you know, guard against this risk of fragmentation, which is kind of is the ISSB's core, uh, core mandate here, it would perhaps be beneficial for them to start to move to consider what type of standards uh, could be relevant there. And, and they've, they've recognized this. Uh, they have actually launched a public consultation to gather views on four potential new research projects, as they have termed them. Um, the first of these is, is a potential project on biodiversity ecosystem and ecosystem services, which has actually uh, been given the acronym of BEES. There is a, a project proposed on human capital, so um, uh, human resources within an organization, et cetera. Uh, there has also been a project proposed on human rights uh, and other social issues. And there has been a more technical project that's been proposed on integration in reporting, to look across uh, the information covered uh, within the IFRS standards and how that would be connected to kind of other aspects of, of the IFRS standards uh, structure. So this consultation is underway until the first of September. We could probably perhaps uh, expect that this work will be formally uh, launched either at the end of the year or at the beginning of next year. And so uh, definitely a, a lot of a lot of further work uh, underway. But I think one really important question. Which I should underlie any choices around future work is is really, can we be sure that S one and S two are doing the job? Uh, and how the implementation process uh, you know evolves over the next six months is going to be really really critical in that regard. So Katie, maybe if, you, uh, if I could hand over to you now for some for some thoughts on where you see as um, milestones in that area. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Yes. So I think with respect to uh, the these ISSB standards that were just finalized S1 and S2, you know a best case scenario would be that there's you know quick a quick move towards faithful alignment across the world. Uh, with these standards. And in some cases, that could be quite an easy change by jurisdictions replacing a reference to TCFD uh, disclosure with ISSB disclosure. And in other cases, it will be more involved as, as we talked about the US and the EU have their own processes underway. I don't think realistically we can expect all jurisdictions to land up fully aligned with the ISSB standards because their own domestic processes are are too entrenched. So at least in the near term, I think we might still see some divergences, but I hope that those will be relatively slim, those differences. And I think the, the picture will be a lot better than it was before the ISSB started its work. And I think the other side of this is what will firms do? That's a key aspect of implementation. Of course, you know, jurisdictions can mandate anything they like, but the firms actually have to use these standards and we want the data to actually become available. I think many companies will probably wait until they're required to use the ISSB framework through regulatory requirements, but some might voluntarily adopt the ISSB standards. And I think whatever the driver is, we probably won't you know, overnight see a step change in the, uh, the completeness and the quality of the information that's being disclosed, because some of these are, are tricky topics. Um, so, scope three emissions, um, you know, that's a, been quite controversial. We could probably do a whole podcast on scope three emissions um, or financed emissions for we think about for financial institutions. Scope 3 emissions are a very difficult thing to calculate, and so it will take some time for firms to be able to produce that kind of data. One thing I will say that's very good about the final ISSB standards is that they introduce a proportionality aspect, which you know involves them allowing some time for things to come in and allowing some differences for smaller firms, for example. And I think that that will help some emerging markets and different firms across the economy.
0: Okay, well, Katie, Jeremy, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure listening to you. This is a fascinating subject and I know there's a lot more work to be done, but I want to thank you for helping explain this very complicated topic to our audience. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much.
0: So now it's time for my three, two, one. So that's the three main takeaways from the conversation I just had with Jeremy and Katie. The two things I'm looking forward to that related to this and my one sports fact. So here are my three main takeaways. First is the ISSB standards for risks and opportunities in the area of disclosure have finally come together. And in some respects, they've come together very fast after the creation of the ISSB. Um, I believe that in just a matter of 18 months. But at the same time, it's taken a long evolution words that Jeremy used to consolidate the patchwork of different disclosure practices that were out there. Second, in many respects the reason that this was all came about was to try to both get a handle on the risks and sustainability, to do this in a way that cuts across different jurisdictions and to provide better information for investors to make decisions. And third, it's still very complicated. And there's going to be implementation risk there's going to be implementation risk as katie mentioned at the firm level there's going to be implementation risk at the jurisdictional level and working through some of the interoperability between jurisdictions is going to be a tough subject the two things that i'm looking forward to are first and i'm going to use my words and jeremy and katie certainly did not use these words which is that trying to think about how these will be implemented, the disclosure standards. Almost a pilot project from that is to think about the transition plans themselves. And so that is something that's going to be done at the corporate level and at the official sector level. How that evolves over time, I think, is going to be something that we'll have to watch very closely because it may say something about how the overall standards will be implemented over time. And the second is speaking, I guess, of the implementation risk, how are jurisdictions going to actually implement some of these standards and how quickly will they do that? So I think those are two things to look forward to. And this is not something that's going to happen in a matter of weeks, but it is things that we should be looking toward. And now my one sports fact. So the Women's World Cup has begun in New Zealand and Australia. For those that follow golf, which I do, the Open Championship has also begun Those of us who grew up in the United States always thought of this as the British Open, but it is the Open Championships. But instead, I want to talk about something that happened actually last week, which was Wimbledon. Actually, there were two important developments there. First is that Carlos Alcaraz, in an amazing five-set match, became the third youngest male to ever win Wimbledon in the last at least 60 years when he beat Novak Djokovic, probably the greatest tennis player to ever play. And in the women's, the Czech woman, Marketa Vondrosova, became the first woman ever who was not seated to win the women's championship. Those were both amazing accomplishments. But actually, what I wanted everyone to focus on is a Washington Post story that came out in early July about the great tennis champions, Martina Navratilova and Chris Evert. The two of them, each one, it's an amazing kind of story. Each of them were competitors against each other. At times, they actually did not like each other, and at times, they did like each other. Each of them won 18 Grand Slams. They played 80 times against each other. They played 60 of those times were in the finals. The reason why it's in the finals is because, by far, they were the number one and number two player in the world most of that time. They will go down as two of the greatest tennis champions, women or men ever, but maybe just as importantly in early 2022, Chris Everett and the, I think she's in her mid sixties uh, developed cancer. One of the first people that came to help her out and support her was Martina Navratilova near the end of 2022, Martina Navratilova developed cancer. And one of the first people that came to her support was her greatest rival, Chris Everett. So why i explain that besides the fact that it's a fascinating story is these two women were trailblazers in tennis and they exemplify as to quote from that story perhaps more than any champions in the annals of their sport the deep internal mutual grace called sportsmanship they may not need a bronzing or a statue they have something much warmer than that which is each other so that's going to wrap up this episode of Current Account. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. And as mentioned, this marks the final Current Account episode for about a month or so while we take an August break. We look forward to joining you again in the fall. There's a lot going to be going on. But in the meantime, all of our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks for listening and good luck.